I'm reminded of a story of a pastor who had just finished preaching a sermon on pride. A sermon so powerful that a woman who had heard the sermon was convicted and waited until the end of the service to meet with him. After he had greeted all those who came, she approached him and told the pastor she was convicted by the sermon and she was now in much distress of mind. She would like to confess to him a great sin. The pastor asked her what the sin was. She said, Pastor, I've been aware of a sin in my life which I cannot control. The pastor said, what is it? She said, every time I come to church, I can't help but begin to look around at all the other women in the church. And I realize I'm the prettiest one in the entire congregation. None of the others can compare with my beauty. Pastor, what can I do about this sin? The pastor responded, woman, don't worry. That is not a sin of pride. What you have is a sin of imagination. I don't know how highly you think about yourself, but a lot of you have this sin of imagination and could all do with a bit of dose of humility. In fact, in our culture, humility is ingrained in our culture. We have a tendency to fake our way through Chinese humility because that is just who we are. But it's ironic that some of the proudest people in the world are from Asia. What does humility look like as it is lived out in the Christian life? What does it look like as it is manifested in life? We want to look at scripture this morning to see how we can cultivate a heart of humility. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me again to the book of 2 Samuel as we look this morning at chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. We've been looking at the life of David in this series entitled, David, a man after God's own heart. We've been looking at some characteristics for what a heart for God looks like. And we come this morning to a, a heart of humility, the characteristic of humility ingrained in one's life. Now, as you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15, as a bit of a background, if you remember from last week, because of the consequence of David's sin with Bathsheba, God told David that the discipline would come from his own family. And sure enough, in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, David's daughter, Tamar, is raped by her half-brother, Amnon. Tamar's brother Absalom kills his half-brother Amnon in revenge. And he has to flee Jerusalem because of the consequences of his actions. In chapter 14, Absalom is allowed to return back to Jerusalem. And David forgives his son. And this is where we pick up in chapter 15 of 2 Samuel. As we begin this chapter, we find that Absalom is now outside the gates of Jerusalem. If you don't know anything about Absalom, you need to understand that this young man is a good-looking young man. He is personable. He speaks well. He's got great hair. He is one people can easily love. He is an epitome of a classic politician. While he is away from the king's presence in self-imposed exile, Absalom begins to plan for a coup 
He has greater ambitions than simply being a prince of Israel. He desires to usurp the authority of David and to be king of Israel. And so in verse 1 to 5 of chapter 15, we find that he is at the gates of Jerusalem. He is there to intercept the people who have come to see the king. And he goes on a charm offensive. He uses his charm and his good works and good words to begin to win the hearts of the people. In verse 1, he is also securing military weapons and the support of the commanders. In the back, as he meets these people, he would criticize his father's rule. He would tell them, if only I was king, I would have more time for you. I would be more focused on the needs of the people, things that people like to hear. Now, perhaps David was indeed a bit busy during this time. Perhaps he was making preparations for the building of the temple or perhaps his own palace. But Absalom was opportunistic. He saw an opportunity for him to plot his coup. And this is where we pick up in verse 6 of Second Samuel chapter 15. In this manner, Absalom acted towards all Israel who came to the king for judgment. Note this. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. The Bible minces no words. He steals the hearts of the people. He's able to secure their hearts by deceptive means. What a contrast to his own father, David, who earned the love of the people when he defeated Goliath early years back, when he led the armies of Israel in victorious campaigns against the Philistines. All Absalom did was stand outside the city gates and sweet-talk his way to respectability. Jump down to verse 13. Now a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Absalom declares himself king at Hebron. He has won over the mass majority of the people. He has even won over the heart of one of David's most trusted advisors, a man by the name of Ahithophel. As all of these things are happening, David is alerted in Jerusalem that the tides have turned. He must flee. David realizes that the hearts of the people are now with Absalom, and so he must flee his beloved city of Jerusalem, or else it would be destroyed. Now I want you to stop right there, and I want you to imagine with me and think with me what must have been going through the mind of David. He must have been thinking, what did I do wrong? How did I lose the love of the people? How did the hearts of the people change so fast? This is a picture of human nature. 
And herein lies our first principle for cultivating a heart of humility. If you're taking notes, here's number one. A heart of humility recognizes the fickleness of man. A heart of humility recognizes the fickleness of man. Fickleness means changeability. A heart of humility recognizes the changeability, the quick change of a man's heart. I don't need to tell you that people's hearts change all the time. Loyalties change all the time. Now you say, what does this teach us about humility? It teaches us about humility because if you think highly of yourself because of your high position or your many friends, think again. When you're no longer at the top, when you no longer have the position, when you die, people's hearts will change towards you. The world will move on when you are gone. People will forget about you. There's a pastor by the name of Tony Campolo, a a pastor known for his frankness, and he says this, If you ever start to feel proud, just remember that as soon as your body has been lowered into the grave, your friends and your family will gather together for a meal, and there they will tell jokes, and you'll literally be history. Now that should bring some humility to your minds. This is a world that easily forgets. That's why we often lament why there is no loyalty in this generation. We do so much for an individual. We help them with so many things and then we complain, Why is there no reciprocity? Why don't they return the good favor I've shown them? And we see this in business, even in our own family, even amongst our employees. You're simply but the flavor of the month. And next month, there will be another flavor. And that's the honest truth about human nature. A heart of humility recognizes the fickleness of mankind. It should keep you humble. They will love you one day, and they will hate you the next. Our own Lord and Savior Jesus Christ experienced this. On that Easter week, on that Sunday morning, as he entered into Jerusalem, the shouts of the people were of Hosanna, Hosanna, as they laid the palm, palm leaves on the floor. And as he rode in to the sounds of Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Four days later, these very same people were shouting, crucify him. Crucify the very same people. Release the murderer Barabbas. Crucify this Jesus. There is something that will last forever, and that is our work for the Lord. That is something we need to be looking towards, desiring the most. Names on buildings will not last. Those buildings will come down. Whatever means you are using by which to perpetuate your legacy here on this earth will all be forgotten and crumbled. And yet that what is done for the Lord will last forever. 
heart of humility recognizes the fickleness of men. Look at verse 16 of verse 24 with me. As David and his servants are preparing to quickly leave Jerusalem, we find out in verse 16 to 24 that the two high priests, Zadok and Abiathar, are going with David. And they're going with the Levites and bringing with them the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is a symbol of God's presence with his people. They didn't want the Ark of the Covenant to fall into the enemy's hand, the hand of Absalom. It must have been such a great encouragement and assurance to David to have all the Levites go with him and to have the two high priests go with him as well. Having the Ark with him brought a sense of legitimacy to whatever legitimacy he had. But having the Ark with him would have said to all, this is God's anointed king over Israel. It is David. It is not Absalom. So who wouldn't want the ark with them? But look at David's response in verse 25 to verse 26. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. Jump down to verse 30. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. Surprisingly, David tells the high priest, go back and take the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem where it belongs. It should not come with me. The words of David are telling. He says, if it is God's will for him to bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will see this beautiful city again and I will see the ark. But if God chooses for me not to return, then I will not see this city again. What a glimpse into the heart of this man. A heart that is in complete submission to the will of God. He could have demanded that the ark be with him. And even if I never return back to Jerusalem, at least the presence of God is with me. But you see, David has the right perspective about God. God is not his to own, if you know what I'm talking about. God belongs to all, or in fact, we all belong to Him. And by asking that the Ark of the Covenant be returned back to Jerusalem, He is not claiming His own desires in this matter. And here we see the second principle, number two. A heart of humility accepts that we serve at the pleasure of the true King. A heart of humility accepts the fact that we serve at the pleasure of the true king. This is an amazing lesson and a good lesson for each of us to learn. We do not serve at our own heart's desire. We serve at the pleasure of the true king. The life you live is not your own. You've heard me say that. You are a redeemed people. 
You are redeemed through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so I don't know how proud you are of your achievements. I don't know how proud you are of what has happened in your life. But all those achievements belong to God. Because we're simply stewards of how we use our time and how we live our lives. Now, as we've read in verse 30, David is weeping. I bet you he cannot imagine that as he's about to end and enjoy the golden years of his life, that he must flee his beloved city because his own son is trying to usurp him. He probably wanted a a quiet retirement. And if you were to ask him, David, do you want something else in your life? He would have said, absolutely. Who wants to be weeping and mourning and walking barefoot, escaping to the hills past the Mount of Olives? David doesn't want to leave. He wants to reign as king of Jerusalem and of Israel. But he must go. He must accept what God is in store for him. And this is a heart of humility. He doesn't fight for what is not God's will. He doesn't insist on taking what does not belong to him. He doesn't demand of God anything. And neither should we. He humbly accepts what God has desired of him. And so should we. We should accept what God in his love and in his sovereign plan desire of us, even if it is a plan we do not desire. Oh, it's easier to accept the plan when his plan for us is blessings. But it's hard to accept the plan of God when it is something like this. What a very different David we see from last week. In that moment with Bathsheba, when he fell into sin, Perhaps he thought he was on top of the world. He was above the very laws of God. I can do no wrong. But here you see a very different David. One who is resigned or one who comes to the realization that he is but a servant of the one true king. My friends, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself more than who you are? If the king of Israel can see himself as a servant of the true king, what about you? How do you see where you truly are? There's a story of an experienced sailor who took a group of young people boating for the day. One young man bragged the entire way, about all he knew about the sea and about boating. Every time this experienced sailor would give instructions, this young man would interrupt with his supposed knowledge of the oceans and the seas and of manning a boat. As they went out into sea, a storm blew up and blew over them, and the waves began to crash upon the boat. And so this experienced sailor began to hand out life jackets To everyone except this know-it-all. Where's mine? cried this young know-it-all man. The old sailor replied, don't worry, son. 
you don't need a life jacket. With so much hot air in your head, you'll float forever. Is your head too big for your body? Even if you don't think you have an ego, let me ask you this question. How do you live your life? Do you live it for your own pleasures and your own desires and your own will, or do you live it at the pleasure of the true king? If you live it any other way, outside of submission to the will of God, then your head is too big for your body. You are living with an ego. A heart of humility, cultivating a heart of humility, accepts the fact that we serve at the pleasure of the king. That should keep you humble. Turn with me to the next chapter, chapter 16. As David and his men are fleeing from Jerusalem, in verse 5 to verse 8, they come across a man named Shimei. Shimei is a descendant of King Saul. And Shimei seems like he has nothing else to do, but he comes out for an afternoon to make fun of the king. The Bible tells us in verse 5 to verse 8, he curses David, he jeers him, he even throws stone at him. He ridicules David, he, he tells David, your present problem is because of what you've done in the past. And you deserve what you're getting, David. Shimei is a very brave man. He forgets the fact that David is still surrounded by his mighty men. Any one of them could have killed him. So much jeering and so much throwing of stone and bothering David and his men that in verse 9, one of David's commanders and mighty men, Abishai, tells David, David, let me just kill this man. Let me kill this man who mocks the king. And we know the military proudness of Abishai. But look with me at David's response in the second part of verse 10 to verse 13. So let him curse, David tells Abishai, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son who came from my own body, seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite let him alone, leave him alone, and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up the dust. What would you have done in this situation? I probably would have sent Abishai to kill this man. He's cursing God's anointed. The God's anointed, David, tells him, let this man curse. Let this man curse me. Let this man ridicule me. Perhaps this is the will of God to humble me. How many of you think like that? God sends people and circumstances into my life, things I don't want, things I am not fond of, so that God can teach me the lesson of humility. That's probably the farthest from your thought. Your first reaction is, let me get even. But David says, I don't need to fight back. 
And so we find out in verse 13, as they're walking towards the wilderness, that Shemi continues to curse and humiliate, throw stones. What a humiliation for this king of Israel. Some of you at this moment may get a picture of David that somehow he must be so weak, so depressed. These are the actions of a weak person. But I don't want you to think that because David is still very powerful. With one command, with one word, Shemi would have died. But David does not fight back. But he shows forth great strength in his humility. It's a sign of strength when you don't fight back when one mocks you. You see, humility is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of strength. David, with the strength not to fight back, does not go down to the level of Shimei. Now you say, I don't understand. How can showing humility build strength in my life? Well, let me give you the principle first, and then we'll expand this thought. Here's the third principle, number three. A heart of humility allows for ridicule as the object of contempt. A heart of humility allows for ridicule with you as the object of contempt. This is an important lesson for each of us. The more humble you are, the more you will allow for ridicule. But the more ridicule you allow in your life, the more you will be bold for the cause of Christ because then you have nothing to fear. I hope you see that. Even if people make fun of you, even if they don't like you because of your fellowship and your walk with Christ, it's okay. Because I'm humble enough to show forth the strength of humility to take the ridicule, to be the object of scorn, to be the object of contempt. It's okay if they call me a religious fanatic for Christ. It's because we are so fearful about what other people think and we're so concerned about the perception of others towards us that we do not live our lives with reckless abandon for the Lord. We care too much about what people think. And so we cannot look ourselves in the mirror and we shudder at the thought that someone may make fun of us because we love Jesus Christ. That they will talk behind our backs that somehow we have given our lives to Him because we are not able to do things we used to do. A heart of humility is more than simply being humble. A heart of humility is a sign of strength and it is a heart of strength because it allows you to take ridicule with you being the object of contempt. As I've studied people, I notice that some of the saddest people are those who cannot laugh at themselves. People who cannot look at themselves correctly and realize the flaws that they have. I was in the U.S. a few weeks ago, as you know. 
And uh, I met with some of my old friends. And one of them asked me, uh, because they're on social media as well, they said, Pastor, you're really accessible. Uh, I said, what do you mean by that? Uh, they said, well, you, you, you interact with your congregation. It seems like uh, they're at a very comfortable level with you. I said, yes. I said, but what do you mean? How did you get that from looking at Facebook? They said, oh, they feel so free to make fun of you, especially about your weight. Don't you get offended? Now, you've got to understand two cultures here. In this culture, we don't mind, right? We tell people you look fatter, you look thinner, you know, you need to lose some weight. We don't bat an eye. That's part of our culture. In the U.S. or North America, you, you don't mention weight. That, that's something very private uh, and something very intimate. And I tell them it's not a big deal. They're only telling me the truth. Now, I could defend myself. What am I going to say? Well, you know, they overwork me, so I have to overeat. I, I, I don't know what to say. It's everyone else's fault. They keep taking me out to eat. I mean, what kind of excuse can you give? Uh, and, and I tell them, you know, self-deprecation is a good thing. Acknowledging who you are. Now, I believe there must be a level of respect to the office of the pastor. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's something that is earned. Cannot be demanded. But to learn to be the object of criticism and ridicule builds toughness. And that comes through cultivating a heart of humility. Now, I'm not telling you to be the whipping bag. I'm not telling you to take the arrow and then for you to become depressed. But you see, there's a greater lesson when you can look at yourself, perhaps with some self-deprecating humor, but really more importantly, to look at yourself with eyes that are real. Because people who do not look at themselves in the mirror and can acknowledge their insufficiencies and inadequacies and their weakness, those people are never humble enough to recognize their own spiritual shortcomings. And so therefore, they never learn the spiritual lessons God wants to teach them. And that's the most important lesson. You see, if you look at yourself and you say, you know what, I'm perfect. I don't need to learn. You come to a Sunday morning, you listen to the message, and you say, well, you know, that's not for me. I hope the other guy's listening. It's for him. Then you do not learn the lesson of humility. It is through the strength of character that we can look at ourselves and say, you know what, I'm deficient in this area and in this area, and in this area. God, I humble myself because I have these spiritual shortcomings and I need you to correct me. And I want to change. We think that humility is simply something we need to do so that we won't be prideful. But the spiritual lesson of humility goes much deeper. The spiritual lesson of humility elicits in each one of us a transformation of life, a life change. That can only happen when you can understand that with humility comes ridicule and contempt. It's okay if people don't like me. It's okay if their perception of me is something else. As long as before the eyes of God, I'm living my life holy and pleasing before Him, 
I don't need to live my life for the standards of anyone else. Not only is it freeing, but it builds strength. I was one who had very thin skinned. One who, when everyone or anyone said anything about me, I'd get so offended. Then I realized the beauty of looking at myself in the mirror, making fun of myself. And I've learned what a freeing thing it is. Before you can make fun of me, I'm going to make fun of myself first. And you have no ammunition. That's who I am. That's how God uniquely made me. You grow thick skin that way. If a king can take public ridicule, being the object of contempt, without retaliating, how much more you and I? A lesson for us all. For a fourth and final principle, would you turn with me over to Psalm chapter 3? Psalm chapter 3. We pick Psalm chapter 3 because this is the very psalm that David writes as he is fleeing from Absalom. If you don't believe me, look at the subscript of Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, the son, his son. We already read it in the scripture reading. But let's quickly analyze this psalm. Very short psalm. He begins in verse 1 and 2. David writes, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say to me, there is no help for God, for him in God. Selah. There is no help for him in God. Selah. David recognizes And as the psalm correctly points out, that there are a lot of people who are now against him. The forces of Absalom are overwhelming. And they believe that David's God can no longer help him. David's cause is helpless and it is hopeless. But David thinks otherwise. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me. My glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. Selah. David recognizes the protection of God. God has not abandoned him, even though his inner circle, many have abandoned him. And David says this in verse 3, Lord, you are my glory. Can you imagine a king saying that? But David has nothing to rest on. No glory, no laurels to rest on. He is barefoot, covered in dust from she may throwing all that rock and dust at him, crying and weeping, harried as he escapes his beloved city. Nothing to be glorious about. The ark is not with him. But then he turns and he says, But you, O Lord, are a shield for me. You are my glory, the one who lifts up my head. From his humbled position, this humble king sees the glory of the true king. Now, it's interesting that we often forget that we need to be looking up at God instead of looking down on him. We are so high about ourselves that we're always looking down on God. That's the wrong position. Sometimes God is to humble us so that from the depth of where we are, 
we look up. He is my glory, David says. He will be my encouragement. Look at verse 5 and 6. You think David is sleepless? I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David says, I may never return back to Jerusalem. I may never able to be able to see the ark again. I may be killed, but I'm not going to worry. I'm going to sleep at night because God has encouraged me. He concludes the psalm in verse 7 and 8. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. David concludes the psalm by stating that God is my salvation. God will take care of my problems. It's interesting that David is not specific in what God will do as he is in other psalms. But here David says, I find in God one who I can turn to for help. And here in this short, simple psalm, we draw out the fourth profound principle, number four. A heart of humility is a heart that turns to God for help in times of need. A heart of humility is a heart that turns to God for help in times of need. You see, we often don't turn to God for help because we don't see ourselves as people in need. You are to see yourself always as people in need. You don't even know what the future holds. You don't know if an hour from now you will be unable to leave the church because the streets will be flooded. You don't know if an hour from now the sun will come shining brightly and you'll be hot and sticky and muggy. You don't know. You don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now. Whether you're going to die of a heart attack or from a stroke. Or that you'll be able to live to a hundred to see your great-grandchildren. You don't know. You are always in a state of need. And if you're humble enough to recognize that, then you begin to cultivate a heart of humility. But when you are in need, you turn to God for help. That's the basic problem with people. They can't humble themselves enough to ask for help. They still trust in themselves. They pay lip service to trusting in God. But most oftentimes, if you're honest with yourself and with God, you're simply not desperate enough to turn to God for real help. We say, Lord, we trust you. But we're really trusting in ourselves, in our ability. But when we trust in our ability, we're going to get caught. It's going to show itself insufficient to meet our needs. I'm reminded of a story of a chauffeur, a driver. And his job was to drive a certain famous chemistry professor to dozens of his speaking engagements. As his chauffeur slash aide, he would often hear the same canned speech many a times. He could almost memorize it word perfect. 
On one particular evening, on driving this chemistry professor to another engagement, he said, Professor, I believe I could give your speech myself. I've heard it so often, I can memorize it. The professor said, no, you can't. He said, yes, I can. The professor said, okay, I'll bet you 50 bucks you can't. You're on, the driver said. The professor said, okay, this evening. They don't know me. Let's trade places. So the chauffeur stopped the car, and the two of them exchanged the tire. The chemist became the driver, and the driver became the chemist. And so they arrived at the banquet. The driver, dressed in a tuxedo, sat at the head of the table. And they didn't recognize him, and so he was introduced. He stood up, and with all confidence of having memorized this canned speech, gave the talk word for word perfect. So eloquently delivered and so powerfully given, they gave him a standing ovation when he finished Feeling very satisfied with himself as he was about to get down, the MC got up. And he said, you know, we're so fortunate to have such a fine expert on the matter with us this evening. Since we have a little extra time, let's have some questions and answers. The first question was asked. And there, the driver in the attire of the chemist stood dumbfounded. He had no idea how to answer this question. Clearing his throat in nervousness, he thought, what should I do? Finally, he said to the man who asked the question, Sir, that's just about the dumbest question I've ever heard. It's so simple. In fact, it's so dumb and simple, I bet you my driver can answer that question. How do you see yourself? How confident are you in your abilities? If you cannot see yourself as one who is in need, always, which is the truth, then your overconfidence will get you into trouble. Your self-sufficiency will show forth for what it is, and it is inadequate. You want to live lives that are righteous and good and, and do not mess up, then it's time today for you to cultivate a heart of humility, turning to God for help in times of need. You see, there's a difference between being humble and having a heart of humility. Being humble is an event. It's a moment. You receive something, you humbly receive it. You get an accolade, you are humble. But a life and a heart of humility is a lifestyle. It permeates the very person that you are. It is not simply how you treat someone else. It is not how you answer someone back. It is the very attitude and the process by which you live out your life, always in utter dependence upon God. A life of humility goes beyond the superficial with which we have placed it. A life of humility changes the very person we are. A lot of you don't like humility because it is associated with weakness. 
But I want you to see something here. I want you to see the power of humility. And we look no further than our own Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Lord humbled Himself. He became incarnate. He took on human flesh. Lower than an angel in classification. So that He could come to earth to win the hearts and mind of a fickle mankind. Our Lord humbled Himself so that He could save the people. He could save the very people who would reject Him. Our Lord was humble enough to pray to God, even though He was the Son of God, God Himself, at Gethsemane. And He said, Lord, not my will, but Thy will be done. Help me to be able to endure the sins of the world. This is our Lord. Our Lord was humble enough that He became the source of ridicule and the source and the object of contempt as He walked that way of suffering. The book of Isaiah tells us He was rejected. He was despised. He could have summoned the legions of angels that were at His beck and call to free Him from the cross and to strike out and strike down the Roman legions. But in his humility, he endured, the Bible tells us, he endured the suffering and the shame to die on the cross for you and me. His humility saved each one of us. And here we are complaining that we cannot be humble. What is the end result? Not only was there salvation for mankind in the great humiliation of Jesus Christ, at the end, the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and 11, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our humiliation may not be recognized in this lifetime, but it will be recognized in the life to come, and it is forever. We are not called in this life to impress others with how we live or how much we have or what is our position we are to impress them with our character don't impress the world with what you have impress them with your Christ-like character especially in humility would you my friends journey with me as together we cultivate a heart of humility like that of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So that it can be said of each person here, you are a man and a woman after God's own heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. A poignant reminder for a generation that prides itself in pride. A world that desires to one-up each other. 
in the ever game of who's got the bigger ego. That is not how Christ lived his life. He lived his life in humility. And it was not weakness, but strength, because it was able to save the world. May your people, may your church be different from the world. May it be a people that this morning begins to cultivate a heart of humility. Now, it's not going to be easy, Lord, but help us to do so because we want to portray Christ in our life. We want to be known as men and women after God's own heart. Thank you for your word, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.